Hello and welcome to v Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. The following audio was recorded live at v Dundee as part of our public programme. If you'd like to come along to our next event, head over to the website for details. Well, thank you all very much for that lovely, warm Dundonian welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I came to see when this literally was still a construction site, a sort of hole in the ground, and heard all about the exciting plans for the museum, for the team. And I came a year ago when the building was finished. There was absolutely no exhibits in it. So I've been so looking forward to coming back and seeing um, the Scottish Design Collection and the wonderful Ocean Liners show. So it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, as Alan explained, I'm going to talk about my new book, Designers and Attitude, and um, which really sort of encapsulates my vision of design, my thinking about it right now, and also lots of the design projects I really love and love to talk and write about. So here goes. Now, I am going to begin with one of my design heroes. As a good feminist, I obviously have lots of design heroines, but in a spirit of gender equality, I have heroes too. And here is one of them. This is, of course, the wonderful Laszlo Moyli Nage. Now, he is an absolutely, for me, irresistible figure. He, of course, was a Hungarian emigre, an artist, a designer, a visual theorist, one of the most famous teachers at the Bauhaus. And here he is wearing the factory overalls he wore every day to teach at the Bauhaus as a symbol of his confidence in um, the power of technology and industry to literally build a better future for all of us. And there are many reasons even in addition to that, to love him. He was the first teacher who allowed women to study whichever subjects they wanted at the Bauhaus rather than constraining them to the women's section uh, where they could study bookbinding, ceramics and weaving, and that was it. And then when he left Nazi Germany, he was Jewish, so obviously he had to leave before the repression um, became terminal. Um, he left for the United States and he opened a new design school in Chicago. And at a time when the city's education system was still, still segregated, he welcomed African-Americans as students and teachers at the school. So he's an absolutely extraordinary, courageous figure in design history. And wherever he was, and regardless of his personal circumstances, which were often like those of many emigres, very difficult, he remained optimistic, generous, subversive, curious, and completely committed to experimentation, from pioneering what were then the new media of film and photography to investigating their impact on daily life. But critically, he also reinvented the concept of design by liberating it from the constraints of the professional role that it had played really since the start of the Industrial Revolution and by um, reinventing it as a much more improvisational, a much looser, more fluid medium that was rooted in instinct, ingenuity, resourcefulness, and was open to everyone. He did this in his final book, Vision in Motion. Now, he was dying of leukemia when he wrote the book, and he was so determined to finish that he urged his wife, Sybil, to bring his notes, the pages he'd already written, his photographs, his drawings, and so on, to his hospital room so he could work on it between treatment. And he died in November 1946, and Vision in Motion was published the following year. 
and it presented an unusually eclectic and empowering vision of design, which was incredibly prescient. And he summed it up with these words in the second chapter. Designing is not a profession, but an attitude. And I've always loved that phrase because quaint though the word designing seems to us now, I've always admired his conviction that design should be, as he put it, transformed from the notion of a specialist function into a generally valid attitude of resourcefulness and inventiveness. And of course, this vision of design was rooted in Moulinage's commitment to constructivism, the movement that he'd encountered as a young artist in Budapest after World War I, because design was absolutely central to the work of all the constructivists, particularly the original group. And here are two of them, the avant-garde Russian artist Alexandra Rodchenko and his wife Varvara Stepanova, looking so super cool in their chunky jumpers that um, they could be progressive young designers and artists today. And they, with their friends like El Lazisky and Lubyov Popova, really championed the constructivist cause. They believed that artists, designers and scientists should collaborate with industry to build a fairer, more progressive society by creating, as Popova put it, new things for the new life. And this, of course, was the vision of design that Laszlo Moulinage introduced to the Bauhaus in the 1920s and then to the new design schools he founded in Chicago after fleeing to the United States. And I chose the phrase, design as an attitude, as the title of my new book, tribute to Moulinage, but also because I believe that his particular concept of design as an attitudinal discipline, one that's steeped in experimentation, is a defining force in design today. When a new generation of designers, professional and otherwise, are seizing their chance to work independently in pursuit of their social, political and environmental goals. But before I explain what I believe attitudinal design means in a contemporary context, I'm going to begin by describing what I think design itself is. Now, of course, design is a very complex and elusive phenomenon. It's adopted many different meanings in different contexts at different times. But I believe it's always had one elemental role, despite all of these many guises that it's played and that is this design is an agent of change which can help us to make sense of what's happening and to turn it to our advantage and I believe that this applies to changes of any type whether they're social political economic scientific technological cultural ecological or whatever because one of design's elemental roles is to ensure that they're interpreted in ways that will affect us positively rather than negatively and it has of course done exactly that for centuries because design has been practiced generally unknowingly and instinctively long before a word was invented to describe it. Whenever human beings have sought to change their way of life or their surroundings or the things that fill them, they've acted as designers, but they've generally done so entirely instinctively. Prehistoric men and women did so on the necessity as the mother of invention principle, whenever they sharpened sticks and stones or animal bones into tools or weapons or moulded clay into vessels that could be eaten or drunk from. And many subsequent design feats have been equally instinctive. 
This is one of my favourites. This, of course, is the raised fist, and it has been accepted and recognised worldwide as a symbol of strength and unity in the face of adversity for over 3,000 years, ever since ancient Mesopotamia. And the same gesture of raising and clenching your fist, which is an absolutely brilliant symbol of strength and unity, because by doing so, the blood courses down your veins, so you really do feel physically stronger and mentally empowered and ready to take on the world and evil enemies in particular. Um, it has been used by a succession of political activists from campaigners for workers' rights in the early 20th century, the Russian revolutionaries, to the black power and women's movements in the 60s and 70s, and more recently by activists like these in Black Lives Matter. Now, another almost as ancient emblem, this one is only 2,000 years old, so a whole millennium younger than the raised fist, is this. It's the equally recognisable white flag. Now, it was officially acknowledged globally as a symbol of surrender and the end of conflict in the late 19th century, but it has been used for that purpose for over 2,000 years, ever since the Eastern Han Dynasty in ancient China. Now, nor has design ever lost its prehistoric necessity as the mother of invention role as a useful tool for resourceful people in challenging circumstances. And there are some fantastic examples of this in the Scottish Design Galleries here at the V&A Dundee. One of my favourite examples is the wonderful Orkney chair, which was, of course, made originally by resourceful Orcadians from found material on the islands, so driftwood, um, wheat that had been grown there, the sort of leftovers from the crop. And then, of course, David Kirkwood, the most famous Orkney chairmaker, designed a template, the standardised design template from which he could produce them in larger volume and so sold them all over Britain and they became extremely fashionable. So this is a brilliant example of necessity as the mother of invention. But so, perhaps less predictably, is this. And the project I'm talking about is the flag up in the top right-hand corner of the slide, which is, of course, the famous pirate flag, the skull and crossbow. Now, that flag, and maritime historians have never satisfactorily worked out exactly how or why, but it started to be flown by pirates who were terrorising the high seas all over the world in very large numbers at the, in the early 18th century during the golden age of piracy. And, of course, this was when notorious pirates like Blackbeard... Edward Teach, the sinister figure in the middle of the slide, were wreaking havoc. But they, were, they weren't just bloodthirsty um, scoundrels. They were also very astute businessmen. They realised that they should run their ships as profitably as possible, and this meant executing their raids as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible, ideally by using... as very little ammunition and, of course, not risking the lives of their crew. And they realised that the best possible way of doing this was to terrify their intended victims into surrendering on sight. So the skull and crossbones and flying it from their ships was part of an arsenal of tactical design tools that they used to do precisely that. So when... 
it was flown, its message was communicated very clearly, which is, of course, essential for any good example of communication design. In this case, surrender or you'll suffer terribly, and hugely successful it was too. Now, another example of equally ingenious design ingenuity, but for very different motives, is this. This is a pie chart that belonged to the 19th century British healthcare reformer, Florence Nightingale. Now, she came from a very wealthy family who were horrified when she announced that she was going to volunteer to work in the British military clinics in the Crimean War in what's now Turkey. And when she got there, she herself was horrified to discover that more patients were dying of infections they caught in the filthy, fetid wards than from their battle wounds. So she decided to design templates for safe, sanitary, clean, light, airy and healthy <coughs> military clinics, and she drew heavily on existing designs by a Manchester doctor, John Roberton. Um, so she designed the templates for decent military clinics and then mounted a very dynamic campaign to the British government to get the funding she needed to build them. Now, she was mounting very complex, highly contentious arguments in the campaign and realised that she needed to communicate them as clearly as possible. So she used newfangled pie charts, which were developed of course, by information designers and economists like William Playfair here in Scotland to communicate her arguments clearly. And by doing so, Florence Nightingale became a very improbable and entirely unwitting pioneer of information design. And when she returned to Britain, she also designed templates for civilian hospitals and used exactly the same tactics to convey her arguments and to get her funding with equal but by then, by the late 19th century, design, of course, was being applied in a very different way, knowingly and systematically, to manufacture huge quantities of goods of consistent quality. And during this period, the industrialization, if you like, of design, the practice of design was transformed. It was professionalized and formalized, design categories were identified, training courses and schools were introduced. And, but I believe that it was during this period that design was restricted to a largely professional and commercial role, one that was generally executed under instruction from someone else, and that this, entirely unintentionally, was the beginning of its diminution and its stereotyping as a promotional or styling tool, something that's concerned much more with surface appearance rather than substance. Now, there were always exceptions to this model, and Moulinage, of course, was one of them, and so was this character, another of my design heroes, the brilliant Richard Buckminster Fuller. He was the maverick US designer, engineer, mathematician, scientist, the self-styled astronaut of spaceship Earth. Now, he sounded the alarm about the dam environmental damage caused by industrialization as early as the 1920s, and he urged fellow designers to devote their working lives to fighting it. But of course, sadly, relatively few of them did. Because there continue to be radicals and mavericks in designs, often rather romantic ones. This is what was called the Atelier Populaire. And this was the impromptu studio that was set up by the young artists and designers who occupied the École des Beaux-Arts, the big Parisian art school, during the May 1968 student riots. And they established the Atelier Populaire, or Popular 
workshop where they produced hundreds of posters like these, which they called weapons in service of the struggle. And at the time, under de Gaulle's government, the French media was completely under government control. So the sort of information that was being released about the May 1968 protests, which spread all over the country and outside university campuses, into factories and so on, very little information or rather biased information was released about it. So these posters were absolutely essential in communicating the arguments. And another cause that benefited hugely from the resourcefulness, in its case of anonymous designers, was Grand Fury. This was a collective of US artists and designers who designed hundreds of banners, billboards, T-shirts and stickers to raise awareness of AIDS worldwide during the 1980s and 90s. It also sought to redress misconceptions about AIDS, AIDS with courage and wit, as in its slogans, kissing doesn't kill, greed and indifference do, and this was plastered across buses all over New York City. But inspiring though projects like design, sorry, like these are, Attitudinal design remained on the margins of design culture throughout the 20th century. But that, I believe, has changed dramatically as design has recently experienced a radical transformation into the fluid, expansive and open-ended discipline that Moulinage described in Vision in Motion. And the chief catalyst for this, apart from the determination, the skill, the ingenuity of the individuals involved, is a plethora of quite basic and familiar digital tools that have transformed the practice and possibilities of design. Most of them are fairly basic and inexpensive, but if imaginatively applied, have proved incredibly useful in helping designers to operate increasingly independently and ambitiously. So as an example, the availability of crowdfunding platforms helps designers to raise capital, as does the possibility of securing grants from the growing number of charitable foundations that support social and humanitarian design projects like the Gates Foundation, Acumen, and the Candida Fund. So to put this in context, one of the boldest attitudinal design projects, this one, the Ocean Cleanup, a non-profit founded by a young Dutch design engineer, Boyan Slat, five years ago, to develop ways of clearing plastic trash from our oceans, has raised over $30 million from crowdfunding and grants in the last four years. Designers are also able to manage huge quantities of data on affordable computers and, of course, to use social media to raise awareness of their work, to flush out collaborators, suppliers and fabricators, to clinch funding and generate media coverage. Now, all of this sounds blindingly obvious because designers have been doing it on a routine and daily basis, but 20 years ago it would have seemed completely unfathomable. And individually, any of those changes would have had a positive impact on design as they have on so many other sectors but collectively they have completely changed the design landscape and that is just as well because I believe that we need design's power as an agent of change more than ever right now at an extraordinarily turbulent time when we face challenges on so many fronts, so many that I'm going to avoid using the B word when uh, talking about some of the others. Now, we live in a turbulent and often terrifying situation, which was summed up brilliantly by an excellent example of improvisational design. This was one of my favourite banners at the Women's March on London. 
All of the others, of course, had individual causes. This one summed it up brilliantly. Um, now, here are just a few of the challenges that could have been on that sign. Climate change, of course, and its dire political, economic and environmental consequences as many parts of Africa face the worst famines in their history. The growing imbalance of wealth between rich and poor and old and young. The growing distrust of the political establishment, the rise of intolerance, prejudice, bigotry and the crisis in social justice. Ever more terrifying terrorist and cyber attacks and killing sprees and, of course, the deepening refugee crisis of tens of millions of people in absolutely unprecedented historic numbers have been forced to flee their homes and to struggle to rebuild their lives. And, of course, there are accelerating advances in technology, traditionally seen in the way that Moylinage saw it as a tool that designers could use to help us, but increasingly seen in a malign, malevolent and frightening way. Because after a decade in which technologies that would once have seemed like sci-fi props, or indeed spaces like this, this is a data centre, um, they've become part of daily life. And we need design to help us to identify constructive uses for neuromorphic and quantum computing, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, artificial intelligence, and all the other innovations that we know will be part of the near future and do have the potential to change our lives dramatically for the better, but also hold significant dangers unless they're applied intelligently. Now, identifying useful applications for seemingly inscrutable technologies was one of design's core roles in the industrial era, but it has, of course, taken on a new urgency, given the power of the current wave of advances and their potential to wreak havoc. So witness the current paranoia and all the media scare stories about artificial intelligence. Design is not a panacea for these major problems, as The Economist calls them, but it can help us to address them intelligently, thoughtfully, responsibly and constructively. And the new attitudinal designers are already grappling with these challenges and many more. Now, there are lots of exciting examples about their work in designers and attitude, but here are just a few of them. And I'm going to start with the amply funded Ocean Cleanup. Now, it was founded in 2013 by the guy in the white jacket you will see in the middle of the image. He was then a 19-year-old uh, design engineering student in the Netherlands who had gone on a diving holiday to Greece and had become petrified and very alarmed because he'd found more plastic in the water than fish and decided to do something about it. And his vision is to design one of the world's largest floating structures to collect, contain and clear plastic trash from the huge garbage patches that have appeared in the Pacific and to take it onto dry land in the hope of recycling it there responsibly. Now, his plans have been fiercely criticised by scientists who say they won't work and by environmentalists who say they'll cause more damage than they can solve. But because he raised $30 million, he was able to stand on this stage. And this looks kind of, to me, like a sort of shareholders' annual general meeting or some sort of bizarre religious convention. It doesn't look like an indie design project making a major announcement. But this is the kind of panache that he has mobilised throughout his campaign. This was when he announced that they'd raised so much money that they could actually um, complete the prototyping and testing of their system and go live in the Pacific um, last September, which they duly did.
Now, a very different way of using design to combat climate change is a project that analyzes this. This is the notorious Abgogloshi dump in Ghana. It's one of the biggest largely illegal digital dumps in the world and it's where so many of the unwanted electronic and digital products that we abandon in the West go to fail to die, poisoning the land for decades, if not centuries, to come. And um, so dumps like this are the focus of an ongoing design research project by two Italian designers, Andrea Tremarchi and Simone Farrison from Studio Forma Fantasma. And they undertook the projects. They decided to chart the colossal, often illicit, global trade in electronic and digital waste. So as well as documenting the shipments of waste from country to country, they've collaborated with scientists, environmentalists, manufacturers, and even Interpol to assess its social and economic impact. They've also identified practical ways in which designers, manufacturers, and recyclers can ensure that digital devices will be easier to recycle responsibly. So a very simple example is that they advise against using black rubber to cover copper wire. I must admit I very rarely see copper wire that isn't covered with black rubber. But this is just a stupid thing to do because black can't be detected by the optical sensors in recycling plants. So all that potentially valuable recyclable copper is sent straight to landfill instead. And to put the digital waste problem in context, currently fewer than a third of all the digital devices chucked away in the European Union every year are recycled responsibly. So that's the scale of the problem. And many of the recyclers that former Phantasma spoke to in their research said they had never spoken to product designers before. Now, another focus for attitudinal design is the refugee crisis, as designers have risen to the challenge of providing emergency support for the record numbers of people who've been forced to flee their homes for fear of conflict or repression and help them to settle into new communities. And one of my favourite examples is this. It's called Talking Hands, and it's a design and making skills workshop project that was founded two years ago in Treviso in northern Italy by a local graphic designer Fabrizio Urratini, he realised that thousands of migrants and asylum seekers were literally being dumped in Treviso by the Italian government. They were sent to live in factories as sort of makeshift hostels. They weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to travel. There was nothing to occupy their time during the day. There was a lot of racist feeling in the city. And so the sight of so many people just hanging around all day, because they really had no option, simply intensified that. So he decided to to try and make a, a difference. And he persuaded his designer friends to volunteer their time and energy and skills to lead workshops that would um, teach groups of up to 50 migrants and refugees to design and make products that could be sold. So wooden furniture was one of the products that they made. And they built on existing skills that the refugees and migrants had. Embroidery was one of them. And this obviously produced a very different series of products and also taught them new ones. And um, so the refugees and migrants made 
these products that were sold at local craft fairs. Um, and they also made additional income by offering a repair service for local people. So this not only enabled them to make a bit more money, it also meant that they could talk to local people in a very constructive and mutually productive context. And this helped enormously to sort of squash stereotypes and misunderstandings and to improve the rapport between them. So when the volunteers at Talking Hands learned that the refugee and migrant communities were suffering from severe food shortages at Christmas, they opened a food bank at the workshop and asked local people for donations. The response was absolutely phenomenal, suggesting that this diplomatic initiative had succeeded. Now, a very different design team is pursuing, predictably, a very different response to the same crisis, the refugee crisis. And this is one of this year's Turner Prize nominees, Forensic Architecture, which is a design research agency founded in London by the Israeli architect Eyal Weizmann to identify and analyse data from diverse sources to uncover the truth about abuses of human rights relating to migration, but also climate and war crimes. Now, forensic architecture works with coders, filmmakers, lawyers, archaeologists, scientists and other specialists to reconstruct scenes of criminality or conflict. So it attempts to ascertain the truth about such atrocities as a devastating attack on a Syrian hospital and why more than 60 migrants were left to die when their boat was allowed to drift in the Mediterranean. And the result of their research projects have been used as evidence in official investigation policy reviews and legal cases in the hope of securing justice and preventing repetitions. Because just as Moily Narge urged designers to engage with other disciplines, this is something that attitudinal designers like former Phantasma, forensic architecture, <coughs> the ocean cleanup, and even something as small but inspiring as the Talking Hands workshops are doing. But just as they're drawing specialists from other disciplines into design, the experts from those fields are starting to experiment with design directly, just as Moylinage predicted that they would. And an example is the British social scientist Hilary Cotton, who is dealing with problems like homelessness, poverty and unemployment in her work. Now, she being a social scientist, knew little about design at the start of her career. She worked for the World Bank and was sent by the World Bank to Africa to oversee many major irrigation projects. And she realised that they were very erratic in terms of their success or failure, so decided to investigate why, and found much to her surprise that the quality of their design was an absolutely critical factor in determining whether or not they worked. She became intrigued about this to her strange concept called design. And so when she returned to Britain, decided to investigate it and to see whether it could be applied to the other acute social problems that she was concerned with. She founded a sort of prototyping laboratory called Participal to develop new ways of dealing with problems like homelessness, isolation, unemployment. And um, one of their projects involved designing a new system for caring for the elderly residents in a London borough. 
And Participle's solution was to form local circles that functioned as concierge services, self-help groups and senior social clubs. The local council that commissioned it knew that its standard existing service to provide care for the elderly wasn't fit for purpose. It was very expensive, it wasn't particularly efficient, many of the services were wasted, but it didn't know how to address this. So it charged Participle with working out how to run the service more efficiently and flexibly, but without spending a penny more. So this combination of the self-help services, the concierge groups and so on, was Participle's solution. And traditionally, a designer's role in tackling societal problems like that would be limited to producing websites or brochures explaining the decisions that experts from other fields had taken. But Hillary has embedded designers in the decision-making process by assembling cross-disciplinary teams of the relevant experts that are led by designers, use design language and adhere to the design process. And she decided to do this for the simple reason that she's absolutely convinced that it yields a better result because it's such an unexpectedly efficient way of dealing with gnarly social problems. Now, Participle closed two years ago after a decade of experiments. Hillary recently published a brilliant book, Radical Help, about all the work that they did, but Participle's projects were always designed to be taken over and run by their local communities after the prototyping stage. And so its work is still active all over the country and has influenced similar projects worldwide. Now, one final example of um, a very ingenious and unexpected use of attitudinal design from a very unconventional source is this. This is Sahat Kahani, and this is one of a network of telemedical clinics throughout Pakistan. And it is a project that seeks to improve access to healthcare for women in Pakistan and also the quality of it. Because in Pakistan suffers from a severe shortage of women doctors, even though more women study medicine at university and medical schools than men. And the problems arise when they graduate and come under acute family and cultural pressure to marry, have children and then to stop work. And this means that there are far too few female doctors to care for the large number of Pakistani women who would prefer not to be treated by men. So two of these women doctors, Sara Karam and Ifat Safar, decided to find a solution. And so they devised a concept of a network of teleclinics which would enable doctors like them to practice from their homes, but to communicate with patients who would be under the care of local nurses in literally by online video links on laptops and other computers in villages, towns and cities throughout Pakistan. So um, the patients would be accompanied by the local nurse who'll supervise their treatment. They can, the nurses can then liaise with the doctors if they need any follow-up, if there are any problems, or to ask their advice, or there can be another teleclinic session. So it enables the women doctors to make the most of their very expensively acquired 
medical skills and gives their women patients the reassurance that they will be cared for by someone of their own gender. Now, the concept was tested in Karachi four years ago and there were inevitably lots of teething problems. Um, the power supply in many rural clinics just was inadequate, so there were constant um, power breakdowns. And many patients had severe doubts that the nice young women they were speaking to on the video screen really were qualified to treat them. But solutions were found, and there's now a national network of dozens of Sahat Kahani clinics throughout Pakistan. And indeed, one of the most exciting aspects of attitudinal design isn't just that people who you wouldn't expect to act as designers are engaging with the discipline and experimenting with it in such a constructive way, but also that it will benefit many of the people who benefited least from design in the industrial era, people in economically deprived, politically fragile, developing economies who won't have sophisticated healthcare systems, so Pakistan being a prime example, but who arguably need design the most. And some of the most exciting breakthroughs in the design of interconnected Internet of Things technologies, for example, are in African countries where more people have access to cell phones than clean running water, thereby enabling the new wave of African designers to develop ingenious projects to, to dramatically expand access to services that people really need. And one of my favourite examples is this. It is Peak Retina, and it's a smartphone adapter which was developed by a group of doctors and designers in Kenya called Peak Vision, which enables eye problems like cataracts and glaucoma to be diagnosed remotely. Because Kenya, like many African countries, has a dearth of hospitals and medical facilities across the country, particularly with sophisticated diagnostic equipment and the relevant experts to deal with particular conditions. So, thanks to Peak Retina, health workers in isolated rural areas can test patients' eyes at local clinics. They immediately send the data for analysis on a cellular connection to well-equipped hospitals, which are often hundreds of miles away. The specialists there decide whether treatment is required and then advise on how to apply it. And, of course, this saves the patients from making expensive, onerous, very difficult, but often unnecessary journeys for checkups. so ensures that they actually are likely to be checked up far sooner and more often and have their eyes tested regularly. And other remote diagnostic devices akin to this one have been devised to improve the treatment of many other health issues, including heart conditions. And collectively, these innovations, including the expansion of telemedicine, should have a huge impact on the quality of local health care in these communities, remote, deprived, often politically unstable, where historically it's been dangerously inadequate. Now, of course, design hasn't traditionally been seen as a solution to many of the problems I've been talking about. Dysfunctional social services, healthcare shortages, plastic solution, or seeking justice. Nor were independent designers expected to raise over $30 million to mount epic ecological ventures on the scale of the ocean cleanup, or doctors like Sarah Karam and Ifat Safar to recognise that design had a very useful role in their work. 
Even now, more people are likelier to perceive design as a styling device or a reason why so much plastic trash is cluttering and poisoning our oceans rather than a means of clearing it away. And if Moulinage's ambitious and eclectic vision of design is to be realised, those clichés and misunderstandings have to be squashed. And the only way for design, attitudinal and otherwise, to do so is to prove its worth. Why else would politicians, bureaucrats and NGOs consider design to be capable of helping the victims of war crime to secure justice or to develop more efficient global systems of managing digital waste or helping to care for the elderly? Obviously, they wouldn't. Now, I believe fervently that design is one of our most powerful tools to address these challenges in collaboration with other disciplines, but only if it is deployed with great care, due caution, due humbleness and with extreme precision. Otherwise, it will never win the public confidence and political supports it needs to be empowered to play a more prominent and potent role in our lives. And this will only happen if there are fundamental changes in design practice. One of them is that I believe design has to be interpreted in its broadest strategic sense as a process of change management and a series of skills that can be applied in different contexts in addressing the problems that I've talked about. Design also needs to become more compassionate. In the industrial age, where design achieved a huge amount, it tended to be defined by certainties, which made it plucky and optimistic, but also prone to arrogance. Empathy and humility will be essential to design in future. Design also has to be generous and open in forging true collaborations with specialists from other disciplines and making the most of them as learning opportunities rather than greedy attempts to make much higher profits by moving into new markets and winning new business. And the same has to apply to the people who use design and will play increasingly important roles in the design process in future. The design community must also become much more diverse and inclusive. If you believe in design, it stands to reason that we need the best possible designers, the best possible people to practice the discipline. And we're not going to get them unless they're drawn from every sphere, demographically, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity, not just the white cis males who fill design history books traditionally. And finally, the design community has to accept that as designers and design projects become increasingly ambitious, the consequences of failure will escalate. Because just as every thoughtfully planned and executed attitudinal design project represents a step forward for the others, Every sloppily designed flop is a major setback. And the ocean cleanup, here it is again, could turn out to be a very important test case. If it fails, it's going to be much, much harder, not only for Boyan Slat himself, but every other digitally empowered design activist to secure financial and political backing in future. Conversely, their credibility will soar if the ocean cleanup succeeds in completing all or even part of what it describes as the biggest cleanup in history.
And at this point, it's far too soon to tell whether or not it will succeed. It started live trials in the Pacific in September, which was an incredible achievement, but the test flagged up various problems with the system, which proved to be very adept at collecting waste, but not so adept at containing it. Apparently, it was just drifting off and polluting another part of the ocean. And so the system was towed back to dry land and a dry dock in San Francisco last week for tests and repairs. Now, whatever the outcome, because, of course, those problems could be easily resolved, we just don't know, Boyan Slat and every other attitudinal designer would benefit immensely from the services of another of my favourite design endeavours, the immersive research conducted by the Dutch architect Jan Willem Peterson. Now, he founded an office called Specialist Operations, a very no-nonsense name, as a design research agency in Amsterdam, and its first project was to assess what was called Task Force Aruzgan. This was an ambitious, very expensive, Dutch-funded post-conflict reconstruction project here in the remote Afghan province of Aruzgan. Now, this province had been devastated by decades of warfare and its existing infrastructure, which wasn't particularly effective anyway, largely destroyed. So the Dutch government, as part of the post-conflict reconstruction programme, financed the construction of new homes, schools, clinics, roads, police stations, mosques, bridges, factories, even an airport in the region. And this was at colossal costs of hundreds of millions of euros. Now, Peterson decided to find out whether or not this money had been well spent, and he spent months travelling around to Rizgan in 2015, even learning local dialects and wearing local garb to make him seem less conspicuous. Now, his sole aim was to discover whether the money was well spent and the projects were fit for purpose. All of them had undoubtedly been designed by Western designers and architects and constructed largely on Western contracts with good intentions. But his investigation concluded that only 20% of them were really fit for purpose. 30% had serious flaws and might need repair fairly soon. And 50% had either been abandoned completely because they were completely useless or were barely functioning. And the problem was almost always in all cases that the Western designers had failed to study and take account of the local context. So, for example, one disaster befell a village that had stopped construction of a school after hearing that the Dutch had decided to build one there. Entirely unaware of the local plan. They hadn't even bothered to investigate. The Dutch-funded building turned out to be so unsuited to the local climate that it was entirely unusable, leaving the village with no school at all. Now, Peterson published his findings in a 300-page report, which was presented to the Dutch government. Um, I'm not sure the thing would happen, perhaps, and I hope it would, um, in the Scottish Parliament, but I can't imagine in a million years it being taken seriously in England. Um, and so the Dutch have actually seriously reassessed their post-conflict reconstruction policies and programming in response to it. Because post-conflict reconstruction projects like this are incredibly expensive, but of course the results are rarely seen and analysed in the countries that paid for them. Most of the analyses are conducted by development economists or government auditors, who of course are admirably equipped to identify problems in their own sphere. 
but are unlikely to spot the design flaws that can cause serious difficulties. Peterson used his design knowledge to spot them and to, su to suggest ways to avoid repetitions. And work like his could prove critical in future in assessing the efficacy of preventing yet more ambitious and expensive and entirely well-intentioned design debacle and ensuring that the new generation of ambitious, independent, attitudinal designers can fulfil their potential, just as Moily Naj would have wished them to. Thank you. Right, well, does anyone have any questions? And I should warn you that they will be recorded and so Alan is going to um, run around with a roving mic um, so that we've picked up question there. Sorry, Alan, front row, the lady in the stripey. Thank you. That was really fascinating. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Can you help me understand the use of the word um, social design or design in a social context? I'm finding that difficult to really flesh out in my mind. Um, well, social design is a term that's become increasingly popular um, and it's generally used um, to describe design projects that address what would typically be described as social problems. So um, the sort of problems that the welfare state and social services would concern itself with. So that could be homelessness, it could be um, helping the long-term unemployed to return to the workforce, helping um, isolated and alienating young people to integrate themselves and embed themselves in their local communities. So it's really describing design projects that have social aims and, and objectives. And there are now quite a lot of courses at design schools um, all over the country and also internationally, which are social design courses. And for me, this has been a fantastic development in design in recent years and has produced some really incredible work. One there. Uh, thanks again. Um, I think your hero, Moily Narj, would be very proud to hear you speak and you brought his curiosity and generosity to your speak. Uh, oh, well, talk. Thank you very much. You're overly kind, but um, thank you. <laughs> I loved your notion of the flag history and I throw in that Paolo Antonelli, Antonelli uh, introduced the rainbow flag for LGBT rights to the MoMA Design Museum in two years ago, another flag with a design heritage. Um, I wondered about your... Um, notion that industrialization meant the specialization of designers in a post-industrial landscape like our own uh, how far that design is going back to the skill that everyone has so we're all designers and that we're all bringing something to the changes that are around us and for those of us and the probably everyone in the room, wants to see positive change, we contribute in some way to design around us. Well, it's an excellent question and fascinating subject. I mean, I should stress that I don't think the industrial model of design is going to disappear. I think all these new strands of design will simply emerge and be practised alongside it. So I think design's going to become much broader, deeper, 
and more eclectic, embracing many other spheres. And as you rightly say, this is also going to mean that not only will we have specialists in other sectors, like um, the two Pakistani doctors, um, Sarah and Ifat, um, practicing design and also being happy and proud to identify themselves as designers, which I don't think would have happened 10 or 20 years ago. It means that everyone will realize their design potential. Now, of course, we all act as designers all the time. When we make any decision, whether it's something as obvious as what we wear, how we lay a table, or if we plan a journey, we're actually designing that experience. And I believe that as soon as this is recognized and as soon as people see design as a tool that we all apply in routine areas of our lives, um, the more thoughtful we are about it, the better. And so the quality of our design decisions is likely to improve. And I think this is essential because with most um, disciplines, if it's music, the visual arts, um, whatever, if you're not interested in them, you can avoid them fairly efficiently, with the exception of Muzak in supermarkets, probably. Um, whereas you cannot turn off design. It will affect your life and determine the quality of your life, your sense of well-being, your ability to succeed, or your likelihood of failing in ways that you can never anticipate all the time. So I think as we can't sort of abandon design, what we should do is learn as much about it as possible so we make more enlightened design decisions. And digital fabrication technologies like 3D printing are going to mean that more and more of the very familiar, whether they're objects, garments, whatever, and aspects of them, we may not design necessarily from start to finish, but we'll certainly customise. So I think that in a commercial context, a growing role for designers will be enabling other people to make sensitive and intelligent and imaginative design decisions. And that that's a very interesting development and one that designers are peculiarly well-equipped to do. And one of the reasons why I'm particularly interested in all these design research projects is I think that's a very constructive beginning of that process. You know, these are really gifted designers like Andrea and Simone and Studio Forma Fantasma who are using their skills not just to make another outlandish chair that they can sell for squillions of euros, but to interrogate, you know, a massive global problem like electronic and digital waste in a really original, constructive and intelligent way. Um, but to go back to your point, because you asked lots of questions in one, um, about how we act as designers, one of my favourite areas of design and design history is political activism. Because whether you look at the rainbow flag um, or the pink triangle of the gay rights movement, all the work that Grand Fury and ACT UP did um, in raising awareness of AIDS in the 80s and 90s, um, if you look at the feminist and gender politics issues that are so dear to my own heart, design has played a fundamental role in all of those movements. I mean, again, in the um, Scottish Design History Gallery here, there's a wonderful Glaswegian, suff I don't know whether they were suffragettes or suffragists, banner there. You immediately recognise it for what it is. It doesn't actually say votes for women 
and it actually refers to Glasgow because of the colours, white, green and purple. And, of course, this was the brilliant example of colour-coding a design identity in such a versatile and flexible way that women in many different circumstances and of many different means could apply it and identify themselves with it. So I think design history is just full of amazing examples like that, um, which I'm personally always fascinated to read about and learn more about. Question there. It was, again, fascinating and a new perspective on design for myself. If you were a 16-year-old to 22-year-old and you were making a decision that you really wanted to follow design, what would you guide that person to look for and to help them on their way? Oh, um, I think I would guide them to be as open-minded as possible because I think this is an amazing time to become a designer because a lot of these projects I'm talking about, you know, I mean, this is work that, as I explained, it's actually been going on for a very long time. If you look at Buckminster Fuller being a lonely ecological or climate change prophet in the 1920s, you know, this isn't work that's just suddenly been invented. Designers have always wrestled with similar disciplines, but their ability to do so on an ambitious and meaningful scale has been transformed. So the amount of money that they can raise, the sort of um, levels of political seniority that they can access, so their ability to mount really ambitious projects. I mean, I cannot believe that the ocean cleanup could have gained so much attention, so much traction, raised so much funding <coughs> 10 years ago. I think the time was just absolutely right for Boyan Slat. Even if it's a complete flop, which it may yet be, you know, that $30 million may well be roundly wasted. Um, I doubt it, but it, it could be. I think it has, if nothing else, it has proved just how appealing and effective a really engaging and worthwhile and well-planned and executed attitudinal design project can be. And I'm sure that um, its track record will encourage other designers to follow suit. So I think it's a great time to be a designer. And I think that young designers have so many opportunities and they should just be as open-minded as possible before they take any decisions and work out exactly what they're going to do. Okay, any more questions? Or I may fire them randomly at hapless members of the audience. Okay, you're <laughs> saved for now. Could you just say something about your journey to to be you know to be talking the way you are now? What, you know how did you how have you managed to do it? Um, well, very unexpectedly because I'm not a designer and I had no design training. Um, I'm very much um, the product of my parents' influence. My mum was an art teacher and my dad was a mechanical engineer who then ran um, engineering companies. And so mum did consider herself to be creative and was just making, mending, gardening in an amazing way, all, you know, making things to sell at charity craft fairs all the time. I had none of these skills, unfortunately. Um, dad would have denied being creative but was incredibly creative. So, you know, he built their first car from spare parts. I remember him installing a central heating system. Um, you know, he could do electronics and so on. So I was brought up in an environment where the people around me were very resourceful and very ingenious. And my brother had these practical skills as well. I was very academic. So I um, studied art history at Cambridge and 
then went into general journalism. So I worked for the Financial Times for 20 years. I wrote about politics, economics, corporate affairs. I was a foreign correspondent in Paris. But when I was studying art history at Cambridge, which was a rather fuddy-duddy, frustratingly so course, um, I spent a lot of time in the library, which was absolutely fantastic. So entirely by accident, discovered the Italian design magazines Domus and Abitare. This was the late 70s. And Domus was then edited by Alessandro Mendini, a brilliant Italian designer and design theorist. And he described design much as I've described it, as an agent of change and at the intersection of all the things I was totally obsessed by at the time and am now. So um, politics, pop culture, fashion, film, psychology, and, and so on. So I was introduced to design in that context, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. So all the time I was pursuing a conventional journalistic career, I would go and see design exhibitions, I read all the books I could, I actually spent a week's holiday in the V&A library in London reading up on design history, but did not tell any of my colleagues at the FT. They'd have sent me off to be certified, I think. And then after 20 years of an amazing career in general journalism, I decided that I wanted to specialise and really build a body of knowledge in one subject I was passionate about, and I chose design. And I was incredibly lucky, because it's a bit like being paid to go on holiday. Um, you know, I find it an endless source of interest, of new ideas. It's constantly changing to reflect broader changes in society, to meet new challenges. And so I constantly have to reassess my ideas and thinking. So I'm just thrilled to have, slightly by accident, sort of started writing about this amazing subject that I'm still so passionate about. I could have made a very different choice with very different results. So I'm not the kind of person who should have become a design writer or traditionally would have done so but um, oddly I think particularly the experience of being a foreign correspondent has been absolutely essential to the way I approach design. I think I sort of it's like um, as a design critic I feel I still act as a foreign correspondent but looking at des the design application in all these diverse fields. Yes. How do you envisage designing for compassion and humility? Oh, very um, interesting question, because obviously that can be read literally about the application of design in contexts that require compassion. So I think Hilary Cotton's work in social design, all the um, healthcare projects I talked about, I mean, Talking Hands, I think, is a wonderfully compassionate project. I find so many of the um, design projects to intervene in the refugee crisis hugely inspiring. But what I was really talking about was designing with compassion and also in designing with humility, because... I do think that design, and I don't want to reduce it to gender politics, but it has been a male-dominated discipline with the strengths and weaknesses of a stereotypical masculine culture. Um, industrial age design was ambitious, it was go-getting, um, you know, it was very intrepid in sort of immersing itself in different industries, businesses and, and disciplines and struggling for greater recognition. 
women. But I feel that rather there was always a tendency to sort of everything was newer than new and bigger and better and so on, all these superlatives, or rather testosterone charge. And I think that design has to become much more fluid, much more cognizant of the consequences of failure. And I'm generalizing here. Um, and so, so that designers have to accept that whereas traditionally when designers moved into new disciplines, it was often to sort of bag new business. I think that designers have to accept that if they're going to be ambitious and tackle these hugely complex problems that can have profound consequences, often for very vulnerable people, they have to be very humble when they approach those projects and they have to be fully compassionate and empathic with the people they're designing for. Otherwise, the entirely well-intentioned designers of the infrastructure in Afghanistan that I talked about, I mean, whenever Western designers have engaged with the developing world in the past, there have been some successes, but there have been some absolutely abysmal <coughs> failures, always because of a lack of compassion and sensitivity and far too much arrogance. Okay, well, I think we can all make <laughs> a run for the pub or wherever, but thank you so much for coming this evening um, and for being such a lovely audience and also for all the great questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. That's vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee.